Welcome to Nighttime Conversations with Steve and Freya, unscripted and unrehearsed. I'm Steve McElhin, and I'm with Freya Jordan. In a previous podcast, we talked about romanticism. What is it, and why is it detrimental to our understandings and expectations of love and relationships? Tonight, Freya and I address, and now what? If romanticism is problematic, then what can we do to nurture our love and our relationships? So before we get into this juicy conversation, I'd like to do a brief recap of what romanticism looks like, the beliefs that are romanticism. Okay, yeah. The context I'd like to do about this is that understanding that listeners to this program will not be a stereotype. They're not going to be saying, yes, yes, I've ticked off all the boxes. That's exactly what I am. Is likely they'll embrace some of these thoughts uh, to some degree and less to other degrees. Uh, So I just want to recap them to let people know what I'm talking about when I'm speaking about romanticism. So in the textbook example of romanticism, they have the following thoughts. The belief in the soulmate, the one person who is meant for me, who just completes my life and makes it awesome. The belief in that special feeling. When I'm feeling that special feeling, it's huge. It means something big. It means I must act upon it. Uh, The belief that our feelings, our emotions are our only true guide, that this is true love, that we shouldn't be talking about all this unromantic stuff like practical matters like the ability to pay bills and and do we cohabitate well and what the division of labor is and forget about that stuff because true love conquers all. It's the belief that we know each other through intuition. We don't need to talk about it. You would just know. If you loved me, you would just know. And sex will be awesome. Of course, when you're in love, when you meet your soulmate, sex will be better than anything else in the entire world. And you'll fulfill each other's needs. All your needs through this one person will be complete. You'll form an exclusive pair bond. And that exclusivity is typically sexual and emotional exclusivity. That one person is going to meet you on all those levels. You'll live happily together forever. That's the ball of wax that romanticism has has told us. That's a pretty big ball. Yeah. <laughs> big ball of expectations yeah. right big there. Big ball of expectations. So, <laughs> so it's... Likely, when people are listening to this program, they realize, yeah, I believe in some of that, but uh, the whole thing about knowing each other intuitively, that's ridiculous. Accepted. I understand that. Is most of us are not going to embrace every single belief hardcore, but there are elements of this. And if we're not aware of it, if we're not aware of these elements, we might be enacting them and embodying them without even realizing it until somebody points it out and says, you realize you expect me to know what you're feeling without you actually telling me. I, I don't know. You need to tell me. That's right. There's a, there's a spectrum. And then there's also the stuff that's lying there kind of unconsciously yeah. where logically, if you were to have a conversation with your therapist or with your friends, you'd say, no, of course I don't believe that. That doesn't make any sense. And of course I believe that we should have our own interests and we should have our own lives. But what happens is, is when you're really put to the test and when you're really triggered by your partner or um, you know, they hit that one nerve, you kind of revert to the worst yeah. worst side of romanticism and the most and your most extreme version of it. That, so so the point the point is that we got to be aware of that and yeah. be aware like when you get upset when you start to have these thoughts and when you start to have these feelings and these um concepts of, of disillusion not concepts but the, yeah I guess feelings of disillusion with your partner um look a little bit deeper and ask yourself where are these feelings coming from? Is it really that I need them to do X, Y, Z? Or am I having some kind of belief that may not be a useful belief? Yeah. yeah. Is this a good time to talk about trauma a little bit? 
because if you would like to, yeah, the the, the theme of trauma it, it affects us throughout our entire lives, and most people don't make the connection between trauma and how it affects their life. So. Uh, the, the real wonderful person who can talk about this in detail, and there's lots of videos on YouTube about it, is a guy called Gabor Mate. Uh, last name is, last name is M-A-T-E. He's all over YouTube, so if you just Google or search on YouTube for Gabor Mate trauma, you'll get a lot of really good material. But here's his, his, uh, talks in a nutshell, and that is that sometime in our early life, very likely something happened, and usually it's a number of things that happened. Something happened that caused the infant mind or the young child mind to react in a way that forms a number of beliefs or assumptions or ways of understanding of how things are. And later on in life, the trauma is not the event. The trauma is how the mind reacted to this in a way that later causes you to have a diminished or restricted life. And an example of that might be uh, if a child simply doesn't have the, the confidence or the, the belief that no matter what happens, I can always go to my parents and tell them what happened. I have their support. I know they will support me. If the child doesn't believe that, that results in a form of trauma because the child then knows I'm on my own. I really can't go to mom and dad when I'm in trouble. I have to figure this out on my own or, or maybe talk to a school friend or maybe keep it to myself. And that results in, in trauma that can be lifelong lasting. And that stuff lasts with us on our subconscious mind. It lasts with us well into adulthood until we tend it. And typically, we don't realize it. We don't even know that we have it, and we never tend it. And it affects our life, making us act in certain ways and making us react in certain ways. So somebody says something, and I react. It's not the reaction of a thinking, calculating, evaluating adult. It's Steve as that three-year-old child who's feeling, uh, I'm, I'm worthless. Nobody wants me. Nobody's paying attention to me. Nobody likes me. And that's the reaction. That's the hurt that is felt and the reaction that is in line with that. And that's the automatic reaction that happens in adult life. And that can so, be with, go ahead. So tell me how that relates to um, romanticism and the way that people project that kind of thing onto their partners. Okay. Uh, an interesting topic in the Esther Perel group, uh, Facebook group, um, is the, the concept of um, attachment styles. And the, the preferred attachment style is secure attached. So the theory is that as a child, the child will form attachments with the parents and they will form a certain kind of attachment, either secure, knowing that they can run away and play and have fun, and mom and dad are going to be there when I get back. So don't worry about it. Life is safe. Life is fun. And if I get hurt, I can always come back to mom and dad. I've got support. That's a secure attachment model. An anxious attachment model says, I'm, I'm kind of scared. I'm worried because the world might not be a safe place. And I'm not sure that mom and dad are going to be there for me when I need them. So that isn't done consciously, but that those patterns are formed on a subconscious, deeper level as a very young child and can manifest in a romantic relationship. For example, seeking the one person, the one person who will never abandon me who will love me no matter what, who will accept me in every single form, that no matter what I say or do, they will just love me unconditionally. They'll always be there for me and they'll never leave me. That is a manifestation of that childhood wound of looking for that compensation where I, I didn't get this as a child and I'm afraid of not having this. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being abandoned. So what I want in order to 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 uh, to tend to this in a way is I want to find that soulmate who will compensate for all these things that I'm feeling, all these anxieties that I'm feeling, they're going to be the one who's going to be able to cure that. 
So yeah. what's so what's in your opinion the problem with wanting your partner to ease your let's call it loneliness and and to make you feel like to make you feel secure and to want that secure feeling from your partner yeah. what's wrong with that and, and I can speak to that um, because I was that guy for most of my life is I, I grew up feeling lonely disconnected um, not having many friends not having close relationships and not having anybody that was a real close deep buddy uh, not my parents because and i didn't know i didn't make the connection when i was younger is obviously i couldn't go to my parents when i needed help i couldn't confide with them i couldn't sit at the table with dad and say dad i need your advice on something that was just preposterous that idea so that extended to all my relationships and the way it showed up in my romantic relationship is when I got married, I was still that guy who's looking to the wife, the woman, to cure me of my loneliness. And it put a real huge burden on her to be the healer of Steve's wounds. And the sad fact is that there's nothing that she or any other woman could do in order to heal Steve's wounds because my problems were internal to me. The desire is wishing for someone who could show up in my life and heal mm -hmm. me and, and make me feel not lonely. That's the desire. That's the way the, the mind believes. But the reality is, even when I was married, I was still lonely. Even when I was in bed with my wife, I was still lonely. Even in a crowded party, I was still lonely. But I bet that when you first met her and when you first fell in love with her, you didn't feel lonely. You felt right. like she, she eased that, and now the two of you were together, yeah. and you were loved, and you were loved in the way that you wanted to be loved, so that was going to last. Yeah. And, the, and when, it, when it didn't last, she must have been doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So the belief is, it feels really great now. Wow, this woman is paying attention to me. I feel great in her presence. And what I didn't make the connection to is when we're apart, I feel crappy. But when we're together, I feel great. So the mind, without rationally thinking this out, the mind concludes, well, obviously being together with her is what cures me of this feeling. So it's great. Get more of it. Be together with her. She's, yeah, she's the source. She's the answer. She's the cure yeah. for my loneliness. So of course I want to be with her. And of course I want to be with her forever because I don't want to be lonely again. And being apart from her makes me lonely. Subtext. So what I'm, so what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, subtext is Steve was lonely before he met her. So it's not just because I'm away from her, I'm feeling lonely. It's, well, if you're not with a woman, you're lonely. Yeah, so back to you. Go ahead. So, so what I'm getting is that um, a, a healthier way to look at yourself or to take stock or to not sort of buy into these harmful romantic ideas is to look at... If you, whether you're a single or whether you're with a partner, completely separate from the other person. Because I think when you've been with somebody for a long time, it's really hard to separate yourself from them yep. and take stock of yourself as an individual instead of yourself as an attached individual. Yeah. But to look at yourself and take serious stock. How good do I feel in my life? Yeah. And do I feel lonely? And am I looking for somebody to ease that loneliness and that anxiety? And if you are, you're still going to be there as the lonely, anxious person once the blush of love and romance fades. Yeah, yeah. And you will likely find disappointment in your partner when it starts to cool down just a little bit. And if you can tend to yourself, and actually, um, I can't remember the full list um, right now off like at the on my head. But um, if you Google the human givens theory, uh, there will be a Wikipedia. What are the human givens? 
and it lists a bunch of things which are essential for a, a self-actualized human. Some of them are things like um, status in society, like you have to have a place in society or feel like you have a place somewhere. There needs to be one person in your life that loves you and accepts you unconditionally, warts and all. That person doesn't have to be your partner. But there should be one person in your life. Um, there's a family environment. There's finding, there's giving back to the community. There's a whole, there's a whole list of things. There's privacy as well, like some sort of privacy and some sort of safety. So go through that list, whether you're partnered or whether you're single and ask yourself, do I have these things? And if you don't, your partner's not going to give them to you. You need to provide these for yourself and sort of create a life around you that fulfills you and that way you're actually bringing something to the table with your partner yeah you're you're being there to join them in this sort of co-creative journey together versus you being this gaping hole and saying to them fill me please because mm. it hurts yeah so and I'm, and that i would say that's a healthier way to think and to, and to be yeah i'm not familiar with the list uh, but the concept makes sense to me it makes absolute sense to me uh, the way i look at any relationship is what do I bring to the table? And that's not in the form of exchange. It's what value do I add? So I don't think I, I need to get something from this girl or this guy, and I'm, I'm trying to get something from them. I'm just thinking of what value do I add to this relation, to this connection we have? And if the value is uh, zip, where yeah, I might give some gifts or I might give some uh, some trips, um, that's that's my value. Is, is I'm, I'm thinking that... That's more of a transactional thing. It's more of an exchange rather than um, being a happy person, happy, fulfilled, content before I join a relationship and instead of trying to get that through the relationship. So I brought up the human givens yeah. to, re to remind myself. And yeah. um, here are the emotional needs. Okay. You need security, security, a safe territory and environment that allows you to develop fully. Attention to give and receive, which is a form of nutrition. So you don't just need to get attention. You need to give attention. Um, you need a sense of autonomy and control, having the volition to make responsible choices. You need emotional intimacy to know that there's at least one other person who accepts you totally for who you are. You have to feel part of a wider community. And I think this can be difficult, especially with a lot of people who find it easy. Um, I'm an introvert. I find it really easy to hold up in my little space, you know, I work from home, so it's easy to be isolated. Um, so you do have to feel part of a wider community, privacy, sense of status within social groupings, um, a sense of competence and achievement, and meaning and purpose. So these are the human givens, and if some of these things are missing in your life, then um, you may want to give them to yourself before, before starting to look critically at a partner for not being a good partner. All those things that you mentioned, I can see them in a couple of different perspectives. Um, for example, the concept of security is if a person is carrying trauma from their younger childhood, uh, their concept of what is security would be radically different than a person who is happily well-adjusted, perfectly happy as a single person. What do they need as security? Yeah. So um, that, that one word security can mean different things to the observer's mind. So, it can mean different things, and it can also be cultivated too. Because yeah. if you have a lot of trauma, and everything is 
triggering your sense of unsafety, then if you do some personal work and some therapy, you can learn to cultivate your own sense of safety. Yeah. And have a tool set which is going to regulate your nervous system and get you back into that space of safety again. Yeah, so I, I think that has truths on multiple levels. And one is uh, I, I'm traumatized, I feel really uncomfortable in a crowd, or I feel really uncomfortable unless I'm with a partner, I feel uncomfortable as a single. There's that as a security, or I need somebody to love me, I need to feel loved, um, and without that I don't feel secure. There's that level of security versus being able to develop much of our own security internally and going, I'm okay, I don't need much from another, I'm, I'm perfectly fine, I'm feeling good. I, I, I'm an adult that can take care of myself, but yet I still enjoy other people's company. Right. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that really um, sticks out to me is the sort of social aspect because the sense of status within social groupings and the sense of competence and achievement, I think a lot of times in North America, we equate that with having a lot of money and showing it off through our objects in our house and through other people thinking, oh, wow, look at him. He's done a good job at his work. Yeah. And... I don't think that's what it means. I think it means actually developing social relationships and having um, groups of people in which you can navigate and interact with and be a part of. And it's not really the the whole like showing a sense of status through wealth. I would agree with him, yeah. And from what I gather... Adult friendships and relationships is a big problem. Yeah. A lot of people are missing it. A lot of people are, are really missing out and feeling like, how am I supposed to make friends as an adult? You know, I've moved. I didn't grow up here. I don't have my childhood friends. Yeah. And um, I have nobody to hang out with. So I, I see the people at work. Or maybe I don't see anybody at work because I work virtually or I work in a cubicle or something. And uh, I go home and that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Loneliness is one of the number one pain points of North American people. And you cannot fix loneliness by finding your one true love. Right. Yeah. As much as you it, think that maybe you can. It feels awesome temporarily while the new relationship yeah. energy is yeah, happening. Yeah, while, while this girl, I just can't get enough of her. I just want to spend my time with her. Except that new relationship energy doesn't last forever. And then the loneliness shows its head again because it's always been there. It's just been temporarily numbed by having this wonderful new person in your life where your attention is on her rather than my own loneliness. Right. Yeah. So, so um, as a not lonely person, Steve, what are some things that may ease that? What are some good tips for adults to actually get out there into the community and to meet other people? Not online. Real people, real looking at people's faces and having conversations and maybe even touching non-sexually yeah. or sexually. It doesn't matter. But This might sound weird to many people. Is um, When I was 48, just getting out of my second long-term relationship, I, I took a long, hard look at my life and realized that I am lonely, desperately lonely because all I had was my wife, uh, my high-paying job, and the big house I was in. That was it. That, that was it. I didn't have a social network. I didn't have friends. I, I wasn't even close to my biological family. That's it. I, I had big money coming in, big house, and this wife. That was it. That was my life. And once I realized I want to change that, that I am lonely, I want to change that, I had to figure out what could I do in order to tend to my loneliness. And the answer seems almost laughably simple, and that is stop being lonely, stop being a hermit, and start connecting with others. It, it, so so what did you do? Like meetup.com or what, what did you do to meet people? I, that day when I realized 
that this is who I am. I decided I'm going to change that day. It was something as trivial as when I was walking to my super mailbox to pick up my mail. There was a guy doing his lawn, and I thought, what a wonderful lawn. So I stopped and chatted with him and said, dude, you've got an awesome lawn. How do you do it? We ended up total stranger. I just moved into the neighborhood. We ended up talking for 20 minutes about his wonderful lawn. And I was there. I was present, listening to what he was saying and appreciating what he was talking about. And somehow he sensed this, that here's this guy who's really liking my lawn and he's, he's interested in what I'm talking about. I connected with a total stranger just because I made the choice of I am going to connect with people. It's, it's funny that you say that because I think I actually have a name for that or a I, word for it within myself. And I, I call it like a switch that you either turn on or turn off. Yeah. And sometimes when I realize that I've been going around and I've been kind of moving through the world with my switch off, which means I'm energetically enclosed in this bubble where I don't let any other people in. I don't interact with people. I'm kind of invisible um, and there's no connection. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not being very sociable. I'm not being very friendly and I haven't interacted with anybody. So I turn the switch on. And what that means is that my energy is available to connect with others. And I, if nobody connects with me, I intentionally connect with others. And that means if I'm walking down the street and I see somebody out with their dog, I'll make a comment on the dog or something and I'll just comment and I'll engage other people over and over and over again and I'll end up having these long conversations and meeting them and they, you know, will connect, do you want to meet again? Or we'll end up exchanging business cards or I'll get invited to something. And I noticed that people don't seem to do that very much in the cities. Like when I go out to the small towns, um, people kind of wave and they're they're eager to chit chat. And in the cities, everybody's like power walking by and not looking at each other. Yeah. That happens in more crowded environments. With their masks on. People that are are (laughs) seeking more privacy in the distance. But but you know what though, if you're lonely and you want to connect and you're saying, I can't meet people because I hear all the time I can't meet people, turn on your switch and intentionally engage in conversation even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And another thing is look for things to do that are group activities, no matter how weird they are. So when I lived in Germany, I started, um, I joined a set dancing group and a couple times a week we would get together at the pub and we would all dance like this Irish set dancing and we'd hang out at the pub afterwards. And here in, in Canada, I, um, I didn't like the group. So I ended up meeting people through cycling groups, um, fresh, like open water swimming groups, um, mushroom hunting and identification like these people just kind of get together they're really nice they go for hikes all over the place and you meet amazing people drum circles that's my thing yeah 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 there's oh there's a a great place in burlington um which is a sort of gathering place for really cool activities and everybody cool holds these events that started this place and there was a, a solstice gathering where i went to I was pretty much in tears the whole night because all of these strangers was just, were just so wonderful and loving and, and connected and yeah. it, it felt very one. So there's stuff out there, but you just have to make the effort to do it. Nobody's going to beat down your door and say, please be my friend. Please come out, out the door and be our friends. You have to open the door yourself and go out. Yep. Um, before I add to that, um, for listeners, meetup.com is a good resource. It's, it's free. And uh, it's a website where you go and uh, you, you, you create an account, free account, and it asks you a bunch of questions of what your interests are, and then it informs you. Uh, and you, I think you also enter your postal code, your zip code. It informs you of meetup groups in your area that fulfill your interests. It is good. And I, I found, though, 
that Facebook groups actually have been giving me more resources cool. for, for meeting people. Cool. So I, I have used Meetup a lot, and um, I'm finding Facebook groups to be a better resource now that, than Meetup. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, so, the, so let's come back to romanticism. Yeah. <laughs> Full circle. Let's get back to it. Full circle. Let's come on yeah. back to it. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about romanticism uh, and the alternatives to romanticism and the extensions from romanticism. So we are not vilifying romanticism. We're not saying don't do it. We're not saying it's bad, it's evil. Let's talk about how we can start from a position that might encompass a number of romantic beliefs, a number of romantic tendencies, and how we can extend from that in order to have a more happy life, a more gratifying experience with others. And I also like to start before we get into a long-term relationship, and that is uh, assume a person is either between relationships, freshly divorced, newly divorced, or a single, and they might embrace romanticism, and they're out there looking. So I'm a single person. I'm, a, I'm out there looking for my soulmate, looking for that person to complete me. Yeah. What would I, um, what would I say to them? What would you do? What are your thoughts on that whole topic? My thoughts on the topic are, I would say to them, <laughs> I would say listen to our other phone call. And also listen to, um, Ale- how do you pronounce his name? Is it Elaine de Botton? Elaine de Botton. L-A-I-N-D-E-B-O-T-T-O-N. Listen to his stuff on love. And it doesn't mean you have to embrace what anybody says wholeheartedly, but if you can consider alternative perspectives, you can put all of the perspectives together and choose what works for you. And the only reason that we're even having this conversation is because romanticism is not working out for people. So my attitude is enjoy all of the great things that there are to enjoy about it because especially when you're in the throes of it, in the throes of new romantic thinking and romanticism and you're feeling all the really good feelings, it feels incredible. It's ecstatic in your body. It's ecstatic in your mind. And I wouldn't give that up. I felt it many times. And it feels great. But if it feels great and you can just keep an awareness in your mind that um, I'm drugged. <laughs> I'm crazy right now and I'm, I'm drugged. I'm not thinking straight. I'm having these feelings and they're wonderful. But I know that at some point it's going to come back to normal and I need to have some clear thinking and give myself time to get to know this person. Yeah. And if I want to move in with this person, if... You may not want to cohabitate, but if I want to cohabitate with this person, do not ignore the practicalities of living together. Don't ignore the practicalities of relationship preferences just because you love somebody. Um, That was one of my mistakes is that I thought that because I loved somebody so intensely, and I love really intensely, I I, overwhelming love, um, because I love them, it's going to work. Yeah. Because I love them, I can sacrifice maybe stuff that I held very dear to myself because, because my love is so much stronger than what, than what my needs used to be mm-hmm. before the love fulfilled me. And it doesn't really work that way because eventually, it might be one year, it might be five years, it might be seven years, who you are comes back. And when who you are comes back, the more that you compromise yourself and what you really believe in, and the older we get, the more strongly we have beliefs. Like the stuff that I believe in right now and the stuff who I am at heart, 
um, what I really value in a relationship is much, much different than it was when I first got married at 19 years old. So when I entered my first relationship at, at 17 years old, I met my husband. Um, I didn't even, I didn't really have any ideas except, I guess, kind of stuff that had magically gone into my system from when I was a kid and a teenager because I had no experience. I, now I have a lot of experience. I have relationships under my belt. I've done a lot of learning and a lot of therapy, and I have very strong ideas about the kind of life that I want to live and, and the kind of relationship I want to be in. So if I, the more I sacrifice what I believe and what I want because true love is so strong and that's going to overcome all, um, the harder that's going to come to bite me in the butt later on. So keep, I, keep it in mind. Yeah, I, I'd like to detail that a bit more. Um, and, and that is, my thought on that is, uh, in romantic love, often the objective is to get the object of our love, to get yes. the person that we love. We want them to like us back, and we want a relationship with them. We want them to feel as good about us as we're feeling about them. We want this to work. And in doing so, we might unwittingly sacrifice parts of our authentic self in order to be more malleable and to be more getting along with them. Very, oh, I become super agreeable. When I'm in love, I'm so agreeable. I'm like not even me. The real me is super <laughs> opinionated and really stubborn. Like I'm, I'm super stubborn. I'm very strongly opinionated. I like what I like and I want what I want. But to me, that's in love is very accommodating yeah. and so, agreeable. So that serves a purpose. It, it helps to make the relationship <laughs> bind a lot quicker and get the people to like each other a lot more. And yes, get the it people. Does. It builds on in your relationship energy like, oh my God, this Freya, she is so perfect. Whatever I like, she's into. Whatever I don't like, she's not. She's just so easy to get along with. Isn't she adorable? Oh man, yeah. I could just be with her all day long and forever for the rest of my life. And it yet, makes you seem very and, agreeable. And yet, I'm, I'm, not very inter- I'm not interacting with the real Freya. <laughs> no, no, yeah. not at and, all. And people don't do this maliciously. They don't do this intentionally. They're just putting their best foot forward and being on their best behavior because they want things to work out in the best of intentions. And the downside of this is that we are we don't know, but we're actually starting a relationship on false premises. I, that's, I, what, that's where you know, you know, when you hear talk out there in the, in the internet world and in the relationship world, and that's what being inauthentic is. Yeah. And there's nothing, and it's not even unintentional. It happens unconsciously, particularly I think when your trauma response is, for example, fawning. Yeah. Like if you if you go into the what is it the four F's there's freeze fight fawn and flight okay and my trauma responses are to freeze and to fawn and so I'm a very good fawner and it's very easy for me to be super agreeable um, very accommodating a wonderful person to be around <laughs> remember my my partner always used to say she treats me like a king. He didn't say that much like six so, years down the road. <laughs> so, so imagine a guy who is unaware of his trauma, and his trauma is that he more than anything wants to be loved. He's got, yeah. He grew up without the attention of his parents. Maybe they just were too busy. Something as subtle as being really busy, career-driven people not being present for him. So this guy grows up with that, and more than anything, he just wants to connect deeply with the woman. He wants to be adored. And then he meets Freya. And, and then he gets all this 
amazing easiness happening. Like, oh my gosh, she's just, she's so complimentary. She's always telling me about how wonderful I am. And this, isn't this just feeling lavishing wonderful? the love on. Yeah. So he would feel awesome in that, in that mm-hmm. experience. He, he would feel incredible. And yeah. then um, when I start to feel a little drained, because I, I can't sustain that forever. Yeah. I can't sustain the fawning forever. I can't sustain that agreeability forever. I, my opinions start to come back. So when I start to become drained and to need more time to myself, and I start to come back to myself and have less energy for him, he feels like I'm taking it away. Yeah. And that's very, very scary. And what you're describing isn't something that would happen just during a new relationship. That would happen no. during a long-term relationship where you're not the same woman I married. You're not the it same happens person. over a long period of yeah. time. It and it's not intentional. Anywhere. Yeah. So, so the advice, what, what we're really saying is, is to be aware of what's going on and to keep your head. And, you know, we're not, um, I, I don't think that most of our, most of the people who would be curious about this kind of thing or listening to it are going to be people in their first relationship. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to have gone to the ringer and at least had a couple of relationships or maybe, um, are maybe more on the mature side. And so take your time, be aware, question everything, and don't be afraid of having uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Uh, Esther Perel's books, Esther Perel's and uh, Brene Brown's content. On, on vulnerability, and um, there's two books that I keep on promoting over and over and over again in the, in the uh, relationship discussion forums, the books on passive aggression, um, how to overcome passive aggressiveness, and no, how to overcome passive aggression, and eight keys to eliminating passive aggressiveness are some of the best books that I've read on communication, and they really, really help you have those tough conversations, the ones that you avoid and the ones that kind of make you feel sick to your stomach as you're having them because they're so scary. But you got to have them yeah. if you want a peaceful life. Yeah. And the more you have them, the more you kind of get reinforced that, oh, I did it. I did it and I lived through it and we're actually better for it. This is great. And then it becomes easier to do the next one, easier to do the next one. Yeah. This is within the context of a single person who's looking for a relationship or desires a relationship, someone who would like to have that welcoming mm-hmm. in their life. They, they might be actively looking for it or not, but they welcome that close relationship in their life. Uh, something that keeps on coming back to my mind is that the more I believe that my solution, that my happiness lies externally to me, the more I will expect another person to fulfill that for me. So, and that is a very disempowering, disabling way of thinking. It's it saying is. that it's saying I'm lonely, I'm unhappy, but I expect someone else, some woman, is going to be on the hook for fixing that because she's just going to cure me of all those things that that I want and that I don't have and that I'm not feeling good about myself. And you know what, Steve? Uh, on that note of the, of the single person, and I'm interrupting you because I know if I don't, I'm going to forget it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um. There is something to, so if you're serious about a relationship and you're not just having casual sex, because there's nothing wrong with casual sex, mm-hmm. um, but if you are serious about a relationship, it's actually great to get to know somebody and to kind of take it slow in that regard, because, or, or at least plan to take it slow if you've started sex right away, because I find it to be a very clouding experience, because 
I, I think of it as the sex haze. Mm-hmm. When you're having great sex with somebody, you're not thinking clearly. Yeah. At least in the beginning. Yeah, your mind it's, is on the sex because it's wonderful. It's great. It's enjoyable. That's, that's where your focus is. And, it fills your body with these wonderful chemical compounds, yeah. and it makes you think all the best things. Yeah. And you can turn anybody into a knight in shining armor by having good sex with them. Yeah. I've done it. And it's really, really important to either let that phase cool down a little bit so you can get to know who they are um, once you've returned to normal or get to know them first before you start um, inviting that haze in. Mm-hmm. And I'm very pro-sex. So I'm not saying don't have sex. I'm not saying, oh, be, you know, wait, because it's not good to have sex right away. Go ahead and jump right in. But be mindful that um, particularly if it's good sex, it will cloud your judgment. And you may want to have some a little more discernment before you make big decisions like living together. Yeah. 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 The, the, there's so many aspects that uh, one is that you can have a relationship that is just purely sexually based and it's wonderful. You, oh, yeah. If that's, if that's something that a person welcomes into their life, a wonderful sex partner, you get together for sex, that's the reason why you're together. You're both enjoyed. You, you both realize this person really does it for me in bed. Oh, love it. Uh, but spending a weekend together? Nah, don't want to do that. Um, we'll take a vacation together? Nah, don't want to do that. But hey, we're great for an overnighter. That's that's awesome. Uh, and if that's okay, if that's what you want, understand that you accept that, that you welcome that, and it's fine if it happens. But if you're looking for a long-term relationship, a good question to ask yourself is, if sex was never on the table for the, with this person, how would I feel about them? And that one question is really good for inspiring thought about what else do we share? What else do we have in common aside from sex? Because that other stuff might end up being the thing that holds the relationship together if the sex changes. Bingo. And the sex will change. It will not always be new. It won't always be exciting like it was the first time. It will change. And that's a conversation I think that you need to have with each other. Yeah. Is what are we going to be and who are we going to be when it's not like this anymore? And not in a negative way. Not like, right. oh, it's, it's you know, once you're together for a year or once you get married, then it all stops and then it all sucks. No, it's just when this transforms, um, how am I going to feel about it? How am I going to feel when we're having sex three times a month instead of three times a day? Yeah. Am I going to be okay with that? Or is that going to get me upset? Yeah. And if it's like, you know, Steve, if you told me that, if you said, um, if in, you know, say we're dating, okay, we're, we're in love and it's great and really hot and we're having sex, um, we meet up three times a week and each of those three times we're doing it three times a day. We just can't get enough of each other and we're talking about maybe moving in and we have this conversation. So what about when we're not feeling quite so hot about each other? And, um, what, you know, I remember, let's just say I remember in my last relationship, we we were really only having sex like twice a month. What do you think about that, Steve? Yeah. And you may be like, no way. Like to me, twice a month is a sexless marriage or a sexless relationship. And I could never tolerate that. And you got to have those kinds of conversations because if you don't, they're going to hit you over the side of the head and become a misery, like this big elephant in the room that you just, you can't get past because you never had those conversations or you didn't come up with solutions beforehand. Yeah. 
And I, I was that guy. Is For much of my life, I believed I will never be in a sexless relationship. Uh, that's just not, not who I am. My I thought part, that too. My I partner and I, we've got to have frequent, <laughs> abundant, wonderful sex or else it's just not worth having. And it had to be really good sex too, yeah. right? You had to all, yeah. You had to be great. You had to have it yeah. often, often, like yeah. several times a week, many times a week. Frequent, long, and awesome. It has to be fireworks every time. And without that, I don't want this woman in my life. And when you articulate those words, doesn't that sound strange? I'm trying to be non-judgmental. Doesn't it sound strange where a guy says, look, the primary reason, you woman, the primary reason why I want you in my life is for sex. That's the main reason. So if that's off the table, there's no purpose for you being in my life. Isn't that a strange position to be in? At least for my mind. It, it, it sounds seems- wild. It sounds wild to me, but you know what? I actually said that. When, <laughs> so with my last long-term relationship, I remember when we had our kind of only real conversation about like, are we... Um, are we really an item? Like, are we going to be monogamous? Are we date? Like, what are we doing? Because we were friends for a, quite a while first, like close friends that were attracted to each other. Um, but we weren't an item until, um, we decided to start being one. Mm-hmm. And he said, I remember he brought up this idea. He said, well, I don't know, because I, I think that you're, I think that you're Polly. And I insisted, I said, no, I want a monogamous relationship with you. And, um, I, th- and when we talked about what we what we wanted from a relationship, I said that um, I expected to have a lot of sex in a relationship, and I can't imagine being in a relationship um, where there was no sex or where the sex was um, infrequent or kind of ended. That would not work for me. Yeah. And you know what? It, it has how long is it? it's been? Seven years since I said that, and I can tell you, maybe eight years now since I said that, it's not true. I have changed. It doesn't mean I want to live sexless, but what it does mean is that I, I can be in a relationship, a deeply loving relationship, when there isn't frequent sex going on, and I can be perfectly happy. And just to put this in context of our listeners, is you're not an old woman. You're, you're a fairly youngish woman who it has this mindset who says, you know, as much as I love sex, uh, it's not the main thing in my life anymore. Okay, I... I love sex so much that I made it my career. What, <laughs> a long time ago, um, when I was kind of, I had, I had two jobs. One job was a therapeutic um, massage therapist. And the other one was exploring this sort of tantric world and this world of sexuality. And they were two separate things. And I was sitting on the fence between the two of them. And I asked myself, what would I do all day, every day, if I wasn't getting paid for it? And the answer was to talk about sex. And so I... Um, I went full in and I made it my career to work with sexuality. And since then, I've been working exclusively with sexuality. Yeah. And so I really love sex. Yeah. In all of its contexts, I find it endlessly fascinating and everything about it fascinating. And for me, I, I even surprise myself to say that I can actually be without sex and be happy. Do I want to be? No, I would love to have plenty and abundant, fantastic, wonderful sex. But it doesn't mean I have to have it constantly in order to feel okay in my life. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference than needing it in order to feel okay. So putting this in the context of somebody who is looking towards a relationship, mm-hmm. uh, the, the important thing is to have self-awareness of what do various aspects 
of, of life mean to you? How important are they? How would you want them to look? And to be able to communicate that to your other, to the, the person who's your prospective partner. It, it's to say, okay. yeah, if two people want sex, if it's important to each other, it's, I think that would be valuable to be able to say to each other, sex is really important to me. I just want you to know that it's really important to me. If I don't have sex every day, then I get grumpy. Um, how does that work for you? What do you think of that? And if the other goes, oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm into, then that's a really good thing to know way up front before you start becoming a couple rather than discovering that accidentally two years into the relationship. And it's really important to admit that because if you are going to be like that and get grumpy if you are not um, depositing your sperm every day into the person beside you, if you're getting grumpy, you're going to start getting resentful and becoming generally passive-aggressive. Some people get aggressive-aggressive, but usually it's passive-aggressive. And that passive-aggression is the opposite of making you attractive to your partner. So it kind of um, screws you up even further by making you extremely unattractive and annoying and shutting the other person down completely. So again, being authentic and having these interesting conversations. And, and you know what? If... Um, you're somebody to whom sexuality is very important and you need to explore sexuality in your life and your partner isn't like that. So have a discussion. So what can you do to explore your sexuality whilst maintaining um, the boundaries and the rules which are acceptable to that relationship and not putting your partner on the hook for being everything to you? So maybe that means to you going to classes because there's a lot of really cool and interesting classes and workshops these days, um, like live workshops on how to do fisting or how to give erotic massage or do BDSM or that, you know, rope tying shabari. There's tons of really cool sexual things that you can do within the sexual subject matter that are not actually having sex with other people. Yeah. And that may, that may be the way that you, you invite your own personal growth. Like I teach women how to give erotic massage to men, for example, in a live demonstration workshop. And the women love it because, you know, I have a good looking guy on the table. They all get in there with their hands and it's, you know, it's fun, it's lively and it's exciting. And you know what? They're not doing anything wrong. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point to make and to reemphasize is that if people want more or better sex in their life, it doesn't necessarily mean penis and vagina, um, more intercourse, uh, or more orgasms. Uh, it can mean more sexual energy. Uh, and I'm yes. not, I'm not a guy yes. who uses the word energy in this woo woo way that still feels uncomfortable for me. That's just me. Uh, but, I do. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what I mean by that is that, um, the classes that you talked, for example, if, if a guy wants more sexual energy in his life, attending one of these tantra classes where there are, are men and women in this class being very explicit about talking about sexual experiences and about how to heighten sexual awareness and how to uh, enjoy sex more. That is a highly sexually charged environment, even though there might be no nudity and no outright sex going on. So you're still feeling that sexual energy and enjoying it because it's, it's sizzling and it's titillating without actually doing sex. And in the romanticism concept, there's this idea that you should be everything to your partner and you should be enough for them and that they should be enough for you. And I don't even like that word enough. I, I find that word enough to be very grating and almost insulting because it has, it has nothing to do with it. 
And just because a, a person has a curiosity about sexuality, um, it's not an insult to you. Like Steve, if you, if your focus in life was to, okay, you know, say we're married, okay? And, um, you were really into your badminton and your cycling and your swimming. Right. And you're and, not. And your, and your computer programming. Yeah. And your movies, okay? Yeah. And, th- and that was like, you were really into that stuff. And, you know, you're a horny guy and you want sex a certain amount of times per week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I am the sensualist, which is the term that I've, I've given my business. I'm the sensualist. Mm-hmm. And I'm just fascinated about every aspect of sexuality. And I'm curious and I want to explore. I want to develop myself through Taoist, um, Taoism and Tantra and um, all, all the BDSM stuff. I want to learn how to do... Um, erotic flogging and all kinds of things and you're just kind of like that stuff is so fucking weird like it's so weird it makes me feel uncomfortable and awkward and like to think of of you fisting somebody makes me sick and I'm like yeah but I I gotta know that stuff so what does that mean that just means I can take classes I can go to events I can make friends and I can have circles of, of people that don't include Steve and Steve and I can have conversations so that he can trust me. Yeah. And it's not that you're not enough for me. It's just that I have this really, really intensely passionate interest. And it fulfills me to learn more about this kind of thing and to be engaged and to talk about sex. I can talk about sex all day long and not get bored of it. And then I can go back and talk about it again the next day. And, you know, sometimes you just are, are tired of hearing about anuses. And uh, people's problems. <laughs> so, to bring this back to the the <laughs> romanticism, and so so that yeah. what that means is that in romantic thinking, this would be devastating to you that yeah. I want to engage in things that don't include you and that and that you're somehow right. not enough for me. And in what I'm going to call rational thinking, there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't mean you're not enough for me. Actually, I might appreciate coming back to you with all of this cool new information and bringing new tricks into the bedroom. Cool. I feel more empowered. And what do you have to say about that? Yeah, th- that it reflects the theme of having a, uh, a soulmate who is my everything, who, who satisfies all my desires and all my expectations. They're my everything. That romantic thought puts a lot of pressure on the other person. But if I can spread that out where – uh, you and I have a wonderful relationship, and we have a number of things that we enjoy together, but yet I'm into computer programming. You can't relate to that, so there's a, another person. There's this other guy that I know. He's awesome at that. That We can talk about that sort of thing as our passion. Um, it doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be that you need to tick off every single box in order to me, for me to feel good about you. So that's just one aspect of romantic thinking of is that you must be, as my partner, you must be my everything. You must satisfy all my needs versus being able to loosen that up somehow. It's saying that we have some things in common. We have enough in common to consider us a couple, but we don't have everything that I want. And it's okay to not have everything I want in one person. I actually think it makes it more interesting when you have your own life. Yeah. So if you do things that don't include me, then we have something interesting to talk about. Yeah, the new experiences. Yeah, and I also, I like to have my own life. I like to have my own friends. I like to have conversations that don't include the person that I live with. That's important to me. It makes me feel like I'm still myself 
instead of like I've been absorbed into this unit. <clears throat> and for me, it's really important not to be absorbed into a unit and to lose who I am. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I would like to talk about in another phone call, because it's a lot more engaged than what we have time for today, but that really intense passionate lovely butterfly feeling first of all the butterfly feeling the butterflies are actually anxiety um but it's seen through that filter or that lens of love so it's considered a positive thing instead of a negative thing so when the butterflies go away that actually just means you're no longer anxious when you're when you're seeing your partner and that and that's a pretty good thing but um, if you want to experience some of the intense, passionate feelings when you look at them, you can cultivate that intentionally through the use of various NLP and hypnosis tricks. And these are just kind of romantic and sexual tips and tricks that you can use to make it hotter. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you should have to, but there's the, the should word. The should word is not really a good word, but... Um, but if you are missing them and you want to, it can be done. It's not like because you lost your infatuation or you lost that zing of attraction or that spark when you look at your partner uh, that it's impossible to ever come back. You just have to learn how to look at them that way again. And that's a skill. It's not magic. It's, it's actually a skill yeah. and a choice that you're going to make. So what I think you're touching upon is the second half of this discussion, and that is the uh, couples who've been long together who feel that things aren't where I want them to be. What do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we get into there, uh, let's wrap up this this first half about meeting someone else, finding someone else. Um, some of the thoughts I want to mention about that is is I find that uh, speaking for myself and, and, and my observations of life is the more I needed from other people uh, was an indication of how, my traumas and how unsettled I was within myself. Mm-hmm. So th- the more I could heal my traumas, the happier I became as an individual, the less needy I became of trying to get the things that I wanted from someone else, needing a woman's adoration, needing a woman's approval, needing to get sex from this specific woman. It's got to be you. You've got to be in love with me because I've got that special feeling about you. I found that the, the more I could heal what's inside me, the less I became needy of others. And the more I had to bring to the table, arguably, uh, just by being a, a person that is pleasant to be around. Well, um, the thing with the not being needy is when you don't need the other person, like when you first start dating them or you're first interested in them and, you, and you're really, really into them and you think, God, I, this person's incredible. Um, when you have less need and you can see a little bit more clearly, it gives you the chance to identify whether or not there are red flags or very unhealthy patterns in the other person. Because when you're kind of enthralled, you can be blind to those red flags until it's too late. And by too late, I mean you've invested so much of yourself in the relationship that it's difficult to say, oh, 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 hold on a second. This (laughs) is actually really unhealthy and really unpleasant. Um, No. But it's easy to say no before you've gotten to that point. Yeah. And you have to be able to identify the red flags first. So, so yeah, I'm agreeing with you in your not neediness. And I think it's okay to want things from a relationship. Yeah, it's just better when you don't need them to feel okay. 
the way that I would word that, I agree with the sentiment. The way I would word that is it's fine, totally fine to have your preferences. It is totally normal to say, I like this, I like this, I like this, I don't like that. Totally normal. It's also totally fine to say, I welcome this in my life. Totally cool. Where I get into problems or where I would get into problems is if I pick a specific person and I say, you're on the hook for satisfying these things uh, because now we're dating um, and this is what I want, this is what I expect, so you've got to accommodate me. Uh, the, the thing I would recommend is before we start getting into involved with a person and saying, you are a pair bond with me, you're a couple with me, is instead of trying to get someone that you have a special feeling for, is to think about what it is you want and how well this person naturally fits in with what it is that you like. So if you love spending time outdoors, so Frey, I know that about you, is you like spending time outdoors, you like being in the sun, it would make sense to have somebody who hopefully shares that as well. Person likes being outdoors as opposed to, no, I hate being outside. Oh, I can't stand it. Uh, that's, that's a problem is if you're going to spend a lot of time with somebody and you know that something you enjoy a lot is something they disenjoy a lot, it's going to be a problem. Well, well, if, if time is a love language, yeah. Qual- quality time isn't actually one of my bigger love languages. So I- I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, love languages. That's another good conversation. <laughs> Except, <laughs> you know what? You know what? Acts of service is. So he's got to do a lot of garden work for me, yeah. hauling heavy shit around. So never mind. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, so so before we get into the love languages, is yeah, it's. I think it's a really good idea before we get deeply emotionally invested in somebody is to actually think, what is it I want from this person? Am I fine just being friends? Am I fine having a casual relationship? Am I fine loving this person but not living with them, not being an exclusive pair bond? What am I fine with versus what what am I trying to get? But what am I fine with? So what if your intention is actually to live, to do a domestic living situation? You're like, you know what? I am looking for somebody who can live with me in a house in the country um, who wants to have this type of lifestyle. Uh, I want dual income. I want to make sure he's making as much as I am or more and blah, blah, blah. Like those yeah. are preferences which are perfectly reasonable to have. Yes, yes, they are. If you want those preferences. Yeah. And um, I don't think that's a problem. And The best situation is to find someone who naturally fits into that situation naturally yes. fits ticks off those boxes where you're going through a list of I want this and I like this, this is the kind of stuff I like and he goes uh, let me pull up my list and you start comparing you realize wow there's a really good match here we really do synchronize on a whole bunch of things that we have a lot in common that is a much preferred thing rather than oh she is so pretty man I want her I, I just really like this girl and I want things to work <laughs> out and I'm so in love with her and I want her to be in love with me and uh, you know, I'm not into that thing but I'm okay uh, I like my steaks but she's a vegan that that's okay I, I could do some vegan cooking you know I'm okay with a few vegan meals uh, rather than sacrificing our authenticity to get what we think we want which could be typically based on looks and physical attraction and it doesn't necessarily mean the beautiful person it could mean I'm attracted to this person because they remind me of somebody from my early childhood and, and that's in my subconscious and I just feel attracted to them on that basis. It could be that. That's frequent. So, that happens a lot. So what you're saying is to take into consideration the kind of life that you want to have versus just the um, highly charged sexual and erotic romantic feelings that you have. Bingo. Because one thing, you know, you can make a great life together and be very happy long term if you're not expecting that romantic feeling to last, which which it doesn't. Um, but you can't always make a good life together just from those romantic feelings. 
Right. And I tried. Yeah. I tried very hard. Yeah, so before people get together as a pair bond, it's really useful to not be that strict romantic where you believe that my special feeling, that is the only goal that matters, is that I have a special feeling for her. And because of that, that we should be together as a couple. And that's the natural next step. I, Love I conquers be- all. Yeah, I believe that's really harmful, that, that belief is because we're deliberately ignoring all sorts of practical issues that will be there. They will definitely be there after that new relationship energy fades. We'll have to face that eventually. And it might be seven years into a relationship where the the great sex is now routine and regular happens once a week on a Saturday night. And we're going, man, we don't have much in common and the sex is dismal. What, What do we have going for us? Then that becomes a serious problem mm-hmm. because what you primarily had going for you was the great sex. And now that when that- somebody had good sex and it becomes dismal, I honestly have to ask them why. Because usually it's become dismal because they've stopped participating. And, well, <laughs> and you know, like. <laughs> I, I will share my opinions on that during our second half of the conversation, the, the part about yeah. being a couple. Um, so but, I, I really do want yeah. to get to being a couple, though, yeah. because um, one of the biggest things, I think, is to get the fuck over it. Stop being such a baby and thinking it has to be um, the way it was in the very beginning, because the sooner that you can get to the acceptance, the like once you've accepted it, and I use this, um, I use this metaphor, this analogy often now because I really like it. If you live in Canada, you have to accept that you're going to have winter and you're going to pay taxes. Yeah. If you're in a long-term relationship, you have to accept that the romantic phase, the hot phase is going to fizzle down and become neutral again. And you're going to be you and your partner is going to be your partner. When you get to the point where you can accept that instead of resenting it, instead of resenting that it's not the incredible, amazing, exciting thing that it was for that period of time, now you can get to the real work. And there's a ton of resources. Like this phone call is not going to be the phone call where it gives you all the tips, tricks, and resources on on how to have a super hot long-term relationship. But the biggest piece of advice that I would have is get to that point where you can accept it. And once you're no longer like pitying yourself or being angry or being resentful to the other person, now you can get to work and, and really, really make something of the relationship. And whether your goals are, you know, you've got to have kind of joint goals here and you both got to be on board. The goals may be, Hey, um, let's have a more home harmonious relationship or let's have a better life together. Or they might be, um, let's improve our communication or let's have more interesting sex, more satisfying sex, whatever that means, depending yeah. on what your problems are. It might be to have more frequent sex or it might be to have more pleasurable sex because those are all really, really different because sometimes the hottest sex is not actually the most pleasurable and sometimes the most pleasurable and ecstatic sex can look from the outside very boring like I've had those kundalini experiences where you kind of become the universe and it didn't look like much was happening on the outside, but on the inside, it was the most profound experience of my entire life. And that looks kind of boring. There was no moaning and screaming and throwing me against the wall and, and fireworks. It was just very slow. So (laughs) so that experience, it did not look like 50 shades of gray. No, 
It did not. It did not. <laughs> so I, I also think that the better your sex is, the less um, fixated you are on how it looks. And the better it feels, the less caught up you are in how frequent it is and the performance aspect of it. Could you talk and, a bit yeah. more? About, you, you mentioned various aspects of sex, and I, I, I'm trying to grasp onto them. So you talked about how it looks or great sex or frequent sex. What were those various dimensions? Could you talk more about that? Mm -hmm. So how sex looks. Okay, so let's just take what somebody might call somebody might call hot sex. And you know, you see the sort of passionate making out. There's a lot of movement. Maybe there's some sort of like groping underneath the clothes or one of the person one of the you know, you're pushed up against the wall. There's some moaning involved, like the kind of Hollywood sex. Can't keep my hands off of you kind of yeah, sex. Maybe yeah. you're kind of like being thrown like against the couch and then against the wall and like against the counter and you're yeah. kind of moving around, right? It's it's all very passionate. Sense of urgency. Yep. Yeah. And that's really hot and fun and exciting and satisfying and thrilling. And a lot of times it's really fun to do that, particularly when you have a new partner or if you're having an affair or you've met up after not seeing each other for a while. It's this very it's this passionate high energy urgency. Sometimes it, <laughs> I'm going to say compared to other sex, it doesn't feel as good. Yeah. Because generally speaking, the more frantic the movement is and the grosser, by grosser, I mean bigger. Okay. Yeah. Not gross, like disgusting, but yeah. the grosser the movements are with sexuality, the less focused you are in your mind and the less nuanced and intense the pleasure can be. And there's, this isn't, a, it's just like an end of the spectrum, right? Like on one end of the spectrum is almost meditative, barely moving, very internally focused, extremely intense, um, ecstatic sexuality. And on the other end of the stick is the high movement, forceful, very physical, very raw, primal type sexuality. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to go from one end to the other and to experience both. I'm just saying that they're not. They're not the same thing. So when somebody's very caught up in how something looks, um, and they tend to be like a, a lot of men, men, usually men, but there, there's a lot of women like this too, but primarily it's men. They like to watch and their sex becomes more voyeuristic and less participatory. And it's because they're, they're getting off on what they're seeing instead of getting off on what they're feeling. And so they want this performance from their female partner. Which is fine. It's fun. It's hot. It's kind. Of, it's exciting. But as long as somebody's performing, um, they're not necessarily feeling. So if I'm here, being thrown around, pushed around, I'm screaming, I'm grunting, I'm oh, I'm this, I'm that. Um, I might not be actually feeling as much as I could feel. I get it. I get it. And and all I'm saying is what that lens is. What, what that lens to is an infinite variety of experiences. You should never be bored sexually. If you're bored, then you're not using your own mind. So this way that you just described that high energy sort of sex, to me, it reminds me of what porn typically depicts. Yes. It's, it's high energy. Um, the guy might be choking the girl. Uh, there's there's that, that strong language. Uh, Do you like my big dick? Uh, you know, fuck her like this. That, that sort of language is going on. Uh, there's the big visuals. There's the six mandatory or, positions. Or there's, there's the, like the thrusting. There's like a bang, bang, yeah. bang. Yeah, bang, the, piston, right, the piston thrusting going on. 
it, it's it's high aggression, uh, high activity, athleticism. Um, so, is there connection between uh, what what we see in porn and thinking, "Whoa, that's hot," and people? possibly aspiring to that only or believing that's what great sex is like. A lot of people think that is good sex and that's what sex is supposed to look like. So instead of actually tuning into what feels good, they tune into what they think it's supposed to look and sound like and they kind of copy it and they're, and they're going through the movements and they're going through the sounds, but they're not actually feeling the feels because so, their body's not responding to what they're actually doing. They're just, they're acting. So big takeaway from this is if my mind says what I want is porn star styled sex, that is the hottest thing. That's what I want. What I might not be realizing is that that visually appealing stuff doesn't translate to the best feeling stuff. No, it, 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 and it doesn't mean don't do it. It can right. be really fun. But if you want the most powerful orgasms, that's not the recipe for it. If you want the closest connection, the most deep feeling of being in love, that's not what it looks like. No. Am I correct in that? Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Cool. And, and you are, as a, as a male, you are more likely to orgasm from that or to ejaculate um, yeah. from that type of sex than the woman is. Yeah. She, she may scream and she may moan. But it doesn't necessarily mean she's going to feel good or have an orgasm right. from it, even though yeah. it might look like she's, she's very hot and excited. Um, a lot of times, the deepest pleasure is not necessarily the most demonstrative when it comes to women. Right. So what you've just said has sort of has hit a new sort of vein in my mind, and that is that the thing that we might believe about sex might be misleading us, such as a, a guy, a married guy's desire for hot sex he might be fixated on what i really want is god i would just want her to do this thing that the porn star did in this movie that would be so hot wouldn't that be great and visually it kind of looks neat if you're just sitting back and watching it on a screen but interacting with another human being it doesn't translate into the same experience yeah so he's equating his validation um, his male validation with seeing his partner act that way because he thinks if he sees her acting that way that means he's doing first of all it's going to be hot to him to see it so yay and then secondly it's going to mean that he's really doing a good job like she's really satisfying her he's giving it to her good and she's she's so hot and she's so getting off on this and if that's not always the case and and often it's not the case i um speak to everybody <laughs> i speak to everybody about their sex so i and i he, they tell me the truth and often they lie to their partners about what they're experiencing and there's a lot of faking going on far more faking than you would ever imagine and it's yeah. because of the pressure on women to act like they're enjoying it and to act like they're hot because we don't want to seem like we're prudes we don't want to seem like we're boring starfish who who like aren't getting into it so we do the things that are going to turn them on. And that now I'm not speaking for myself because I don't fake it. Um, there's the screaming and the writhing around and the panting and the grunting and all that kind of stuff. doesn't mean it feels good. It's just a, a big show. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is. <laughs> Particularly Steve and, and <laughs> in the group sex and swinger type crowds, because it's all, it is often all about the show. Really, really hot woman putting on the hot, hot show 
because it's sexy and it's fun and it's exciting and it's validating for her to be that desired sexy lady. Sadly, this is true. Uh, the, the strange thing in the swinger life, in the swinger community, is that a lot of profiles, uh, women who are becoming more authentic with who they are will literally say in their profile, uh, I will not put on a show for you. And these are married yeah. women or single women or the, the, the husband who fills the profile says, uh, my wife is bisexual, but she will not be putting on a show. Uh, meaning that we don't want to live into the stereotypes anymore. What we're looking for is is a really good sexual experience. And if that means that we'll pass 90% of them because we don't believe it'll be great, we'd rather do that than just going through the motions again. And so that, that happens everywhere. Whereas people think that I should be this way in order to signal to the other that they're doing a great job to validate them um, and, and to signal that I'm enjoying myself. I need to do this sort of thing rather than just being authentic. But are they really doing a good job? And, and yeah. you're cheering them on for not for not pleasuring you. I, I, I don't agree with that. And for putting on the show rather than than actually enjoying yourself. Yeah, this- I remember. I remember one partner that I had. Um, so when I first met him, he had never had he had never had sex that was not like banging hard for two minutes and then it was over, because he he believed and he believed this truly. That that was what um, his part, his long term, his wife had wanted, and he told me that's what she wanted. That's how she liked it. But he also told me that she'd only come twice with him in uh, their entire twenty-two year marriage. I was kind of like, um, maybe she was having you, maybe she was having you bang her like that because she knew it was gonna, you were gonna come and it was gonna be over with, so she didn't have to tolerate it anymore. But no, so anyway, um, when he when we started to have sex, that was not suitable for me so I taught him how to make love to me the way that I liked it and um, I remember when he would start to do the things that I liked I would respond because I was responding to what he was doing and and I liked it and then he would stop and then he would do something that I liked again and I would start to like make a noise and move because that's what you do and he would stop again and I eventually got annoyed and I said every time I start to feel good you stop touching me I said, what's up with that? I'm actually getting annoyed because I feel like there's no point in even getting into it. He said, well, I'm edging you. <laughs> I said, and I was like, oh, you're what? He goes, I'm edging you. I said, you mean like on the edge of orgasm edging? And he said, yeah. I said, no. What's happening is that I'm just beginning to feel good and I'm starting to become aroused. And because I'm starting to become aroused, my body is starting to move, like, you know, undulate and gyrate and noises are coming out of my mouth. I'm encouraging you. I'm saying that feels good. Keep going. So when I move like that and when I make a noise, keep doing exactly what you're doing and don't stop because if you stop, I'm going to get pissed off. And he, he learned. He was a good learner. He learned to be phenomenal. But, in his, but, but he had no idea. And he was under all of these like really wild and erroneous sexual beliefs about himself as a lover. And you know what? It was because women had always lied to him. That's actually frightfully common. And, and the, the lie, the word lie doesn't literally mean I intentionally deceive you. It might mean I don't want to hurt your feelings. So I'm not going to say something. I- usually they don't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah. That's usually what it is, is you don't want to hurt their feelings or you kind of want to encourage them. You don't want to like have them sulk for, for two years. And say, fine, I'm never getting my penis out again. So, so you lie. And the thing is, it doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah. So stop, stop lying. 
let's talk about that specific thing because we're touching upon communications right now about sex gets better when there's good communications. Uh, people are more willing to have sex when there's uh, better communications. Um, and this applies to people who, I think it's the bulk of the people who want to listen to this podcast, is people that are in long-term relationships who would like to have a better sex life and wondering what can we do to have this better sex life. And I think that this, this is actually touching upon it. Um, the, the topic of uh, how open are we in being able to express our desires. How aware are we? How aware am I of what my interests are? Could I actually sit down in a room on my own and write down, what is it that great sex would look like to me? What do I believe? What do I think? What, what would I like? So you're touching, you're starting to get into the realm of let's have a whole new, um, you know, two-hour talk okay on, on how to have better sex but um the big big thing i would say is are you even aware of what your own sexual wants needs and preferences are Comp- and, and what you like when and how you like to feel completely outside of your partner because especially when you're partnered and you're when you're partnered in a monogamous relationship people tend to not see themselves as an individual they see themselves as somebody and their partner Half of a couple. Yeah, half of a couple. So when you're thinking about your sexuality, as soon as you start to think about a desire or a thing that you, oh, but no. Oh, oh, but they wouldn't like, oh, oh, but he would never do that. Oh, but his physiology couldn't accommodate that. It's sort of like everything that could possibly be erotic to you, you shut it down right away because you think that maybe either your partner can't do it, won't do it, doesn't want to do it, or won't accept it. Most of the cases, it's not even actually true because it's hilarious how often the two halves of the couple who come to see me will say, you know, I've been thinking about this or I've always wanted to do this or my ex used to do this or blah, 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 blah. But he would never, he would never have any interest. Or when I was younger, I used to do this, uh, this really amazing thing and I loved it so much, but I could never do that now because um, of what my husband would think of me. So then the 